A reading from the book of Isaiah. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation is a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The word of the Lord. A reading from Galatians. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent this sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. So welcome. Um, kiddos, if you guys want to go back, this would be the time. Okay, all right. We've got a good audience today. <laughs> First of all, I want to say thank you to Preston for asking us to do this. Um, it was 
a joy and um, a good exercise to dig into these scriptures a little bit more. Um, So many of you know our daughter, Willow. Some of you do not. Um, She recently turned 17 months old and is the prime time for word development. According to Stanford Children's website, from 12 to 17 months, children are usually able to answer simple questions non-verbally, say two to three words to label a person or object, attempt to imitate simple words, and have a total vocabulary of four to six words. But over the next five months, from 18 to 23 months, this will grow from a vocabulary of four to six words to nearly 50 words. They will ask for common foods by name, make animal sounds such as moo, or for willow, it's roar and hoo-hoo. Um, start to combine words such as more milk, or for willow, it's no mama, or uh-oh dada, and begin to use pronouns such as mine. We're not there yet, thankfully. <laughs> You're probably wondering what any of this has to do with our sermon today. This is not just a chance for me to stand up here and give a lesson on verbal development, though I would thankfully do that. This Christmas season, Willow has been very observant of the decor changes that have taken place in our house and across the city. Have you ever stopped and thought about how strange it is that we chop down trees, drag them into our house, and then string lights on them? At first, she just pointed at these strange adornments as if asking, what is this and why is it in our house? Now she has learned the words of these objects and reminds us multiple times a day that there is a tree in our house and light strung on it. But it's not just stopped at our house. She is noticing the trees on TV, in the shopping mall, and at the park. And light is not just lights on a tree, but the lovely fluorescent lights at school and the sun rays at sunset. She has now become increasingly aware of these things and wants to share with us the wonder and reality that they exist all around us. Tree and lights are central ideas of our lectionary readings today. The Isaiah text is from chapters 61 and 62, which are in the latter half of the book of Isaiah, thought to be written by one of Isaiah's followers after the Babylonian exile. The book of Isaiah is all about judgment and hope. He was speaking on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. In the first 39 chapters of the book, He is warning about God's judgment against Israel if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. He says Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left as a stump in the field, and the stump would become scorched and burned. However, God says that the stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. This ended up coming to pass through the Babylonian attack of Jerusalem, destroying the temple and exiling the Israelites to Babylon. This may sound harsh, but Isaiah says the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Israel and prepare his people to the coming of the messianic king. This king is Emmanuel, God with us, who is a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. This is the message of hope embodied in Emmanuel, who would one day establish a new Israel and God's kingdom on earth, righting the world's wrongs. Emmanuel is also called God's servant. After the delivery from exile, Isaiah's prophets hoped that Isaiah would respond by becoming God's servants and share with the nations who God is. The Israelites had expected a glorious restoration as envisioned previously in the book of Isaiah, but instead found themselves with innumerable hardships. 
The people's hearts were hardened and began to have doubts and accusations that maybe their God is not that powerful. They were not able to see the exile was judgment, not neglect. So God disqualified them as his servants and said he was going to use God's servant, Israel, the messianic king, who was going to do what the people of Israel had failed to do. He was going to restore the people of Israel back to their God and become God's light to the nations. Through his death and resurrection, the people will be made righteous to put them in a right relationship with God. Isaiah says there are two ways to respond, with either humility, turning from sins and accepting what the servant has done. These people were called servants, or the seed. Or rejecting the servant and his servants. These people were called the wicked. Isaiah 60 through 62, which is where our reading was from today, are poems of how the spirit-empowered servant is going to, is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor. The good news of the deliverance of the people of Israel and the vindication and salvation of Zion. In chapter 61, there is a beautiful marital imagery and garden imagery where the prophet describes the adornments of newlywed couple representing the garments of salvation and righteousness. The prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is similar to other passages in the book, where God is the bridegroom and the city is the bride. It is a new relationship. God is also seen as the gardener, cultivating righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. The prophet says, For as the earth springs forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Chapter 62 is a poem celebrating Jerusalem's vindication and restoration. I will admit that in preparing for this, I had to look up the definition of vindication. According to dictionary.com, vindication means to clear as from an accusation or suspicion, to justify or to assert, maintain, or defend against opposition. In Roman and civil law, it meant to regain possession. The prophet says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Similarly to the new clothing of the bride and groom, the prophet says that the Lord is going to give them a new name, which marks a change in their status and the beginning of a new relationship with God. He reaffirms the previous promise of hope that the new Jerusalem will be a place where God's justice, mercy, and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. The prophet is praising God for what he is going to do. It's a common Old Testament prayer to praise God for answering your prayer even before you have seen it in fruition. Hearing, but not yet seeing, is a good reason to keep praying. As we celebrate the reality of Christmas, the incarnation, and the miraculous birth of Jesus. Let us remember that as God's servants, we are also called the seed. Seeds are embryonic plants that carry the future blueprint of a plant that is to come. 
under the right conditions, the seed can bring forth new life. We are image bearers of God and have entered into a new relationship with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Christmas Eve, it is common to see candlelight services. I love attending these as we sing and celebrate the birth of the Savior in the world. The candles are a reminder that Jesus is the light that came into the world, that he brought hope to the hopeless, and he is making all things new. May we also shine the light of hope and salvation with those we meet. All right, thank you, Sarah. That was um, perfect because um, many of those symbols, obviously, will lead into um, what I am talking about, which is John 1. And so when Preston asked me to prepare this a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh, sure, no big deal. And then I figured out that I was doing John 1, and that's when I got a little nervous because that's a really important passage in Scripture. So um, so never done this in church before, but starting with John 1, so that's good. And my um, family is here to support me, so it's very convenient because my mother-in-law is um, a Toastmasters judge, so afterwards she can just sit down and like give me all the good critiques. <laughs> I mean, Sarah, if you want that too. I mean, <laughs> No, she wouldn't do that. Um, She's, she's biased. She would judge me to win the contest or whatever. And Toastma- I don't know how Toastmasters works. Um, okay, so yesterday I turned 37. It was my birthday. Um, so I'm not really huge on my birthday, but it's not because I don't like getting older. Um, I mean, there's definitely downsides I don't like, like my body beginning to feel late 30s and just like an old body all of a sudden. Um, and, but I actually, I like a lot of things about getting older. I'm probably just not a big birthday person because it's a Christmas birthday. It's three days after Christmas, and it gets passed over or bundled together with all the other celebrations, and it's afterthoughted. And I've always kind of been okay with that. Um, but this year, I've thought a little bit more about my birthday, and not just how to celebrate it, but how to mark it. Um, it's easy to be tempted to mark adult birthdays, um, in your accomplishments and comparing your reality to where you are, to where you thought you'd be at whatever age you're turning, 37. Um, Or when you're a mom, you can measure it in your percentage of your hair that's gone gray that year, or um, the memories that you put in your year-end family photo book. And those are really great ways to measure the year in kind of stresses and joys and in the tension between waiting for something great to happen and great things actually happening. But this year, um, I've been thinking about Christmas, 37 Christmas birthdays is actually 37 times hoping in Advent and in the incarnation of Christ. And that's not what I was actually doing every year on my birthday. Um, The first few years were definitely focused on myself and how to best angle that week of getting double presents. Um, And later on, There were many years when I didn't even know if I believed the story of Advent, and it was easier to just ignore that part of it or to pay lip service to it and go to my parents' church for Christmas Eve and make them happy. Um, Now I'm beginning to realize uh, for the first time as an adult at 37 what an earth-shattering event the Incarnation really is, and not just in the amazing story of God revealing himself as a fully human baby. The first chapter of John starts by saying the incarnation is in the creation story of Genesis. But then it's also in the second creation of Jesus' kingdom on earth in that baby, Messiah. 
And now it's in the daily work of God that we are invited to join in. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word of God is Jesus. Jesus was there at creation. He was there creating. He was always God doing the creating, and yet somehow that Jesus part of the creation story in my Sunday school lessons about the seven days of creation, that part was left out. I kind of always thought it was like the Word was there in the beginning as this Bible that was an amorphous, oh, that's the Word of God, and then the Bible became a real thing, but it, it wasn't. It was Jesus. Um, and in all that time between Genesis 1, creation, and the incarnation of Christ as a baby, he was the light shining in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. But also in all that time, God's chosen people, the Israelites that Sarah talked about, uh, were still missing it and not really grasping the real thing. Beth Moore paints a beautiful picture of what it meant for John to open this gospel narrative with this poem proclaiming the new creation at this time in history. She talks about how the prophets, like Isaiah and Amos, are telling generations of Israelites um, that are telling about the Israelites wondering and searching for God but getting it wrong. And then Malachi is the last prophet, and after he's done talking at the end of the Old Testament— there is 400 years of silence, and that's a really long time of waiting. God really wanted everyone to be paying attention when he revealed the word again. And then the silence was shattered with the heavenly drama of the word born as a human baby. The silent Advent years of my life and my passing birthdays trying to ignore the word are shattered by this news too. Preston always talks about the signposts that point to Christ in that long time before he came to earth. This has been so helpful to me because it's allowed my brain to understand the actual Christ-centeredness of all of Scripture. Jesus doesn't just show up in a cave in Matthew all of a sudden to set right all these other plans that have gone wrong. He was always the plan. He was always the light in the darkness. He was always the only way to finish God's work in creation. All the laws and all the holy feasts and the temples Sarah talked about, the holy symbols were always signposts pointing to the word of God, which is Jesus. If I were an actual Bible scholar, I'd be able to explain all that better and uh, how the rest of the book of John is just Jesus systematically holding up all these signposts of the Jewish people that they held sacred and pointing it to himself and saying, hey, this was always about me. I'm the king of this kingdom of heaven that is unlike any kingdom or empire of this world, and I'm here now. And then that made everyone angry enough to kill him. I really love the way Eugene Peterson says it in the message translation. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Then he talks about John the Baptist. John pointed him out and called, this is the one. This is the one I told you was coming after me, but in fact was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me. He has always had the first word. John the Baptist was another signpost, pointing only to Jesus telling us where to find the light in the darkness. John wasn't seeking for anyone to know himself and who he was. He was all signpost. And all of scripture is signpost too. All of it is a divine gift for us to know Christ revealed. 
The signpost on the road is not where you stop and think you found God. You have to keep following the destination through the light and the darkness to God revealed totally in Christ. This is why I think it can cause a lot of confusion for us to call Scripture the Word of God. Scripture itself saves this name just for Jesus. Jesus affirms this himself later in John 5. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify on my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He says that in, even in our divine and holy Bible, which we hold a very high view of here at Sacrament, and which we find, that's where we find all the signposts that point to Christ and the narrative of Christ, it still itself is just a signpost. Brian Zahn is a pastor I've read and listened to a lot this year, uh, and he says it like this. The Logos word became flesh, not a book. Jesus is God. The Bible is not. The Bible did not create the heavens and earth. The word Christ did. We worship Jesus. We do not worship the Bible. The Bible is not a member of the Trinity. The Bible is not God. Jesus is God. This might seem like an odd distinction to make in a Bible-believing church that spends every Sunday reading straight from scriptures and trying to follow the signposts in our own formation as the body of Christ. But I think it's an important distinction to make because it's very easy for us to want to treat the Bible itself as an honorary member of the Trinity. And this can turn into idol worship very quickly because what we are really worshiping is our own understanding of scripture. And then the really fun part that our human nature wants to do is take our own understanding of the Bible and use it as a weapon against everyone else, all those other Christians and churches that are not getting it right. No one on this earth, even the world's smartest Bible scholars throughout all of history, can come to the Scripture cleanly as is without imposing themselves and their context onto it. It's not humanly possible. The ancient language barriers alone bring scripture to us with a few layers of walls already blocking our understanding. And then I realized how completely humble and incomplete my own understanding of it is when you add in all the cultural layers of understanding and all the literary layers. Um, I, I'm just, I can't do it. So I'm not trying to say anything weird that there's no truth or we can't understand the truth. Um, but when I approach the scriptures as a whole and as a narrative and as a signpost to the ultimate truth of Logos word, then it becomes a little easier for me to keep Jesus himself supreme, even above scripture. John, the author of the gospel, and John the Baptist are both waving and screaming from the side of the road that the true word of God is only Christ. He is the true revelation of who God is. So what do we receive from this revelation, the new second creation? Grace upon grace. John says, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Grace and truth is now available to all. And we, the church, the followers of Jesus, are invited to now also be signposts to the Logos word of God. 
We are the signs put here on earth in our world, in our culture, in the context of our time and history to point to the new creation of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. If you're like me, you are painfully aware of how often you fail at this task. I do think about the task a lot, and I think about how I can bring heaven to earth now, how my life can bring light to darkness, resurrection instead of death. But sometimes it feels like it will take a lifetime of advents and birthdays and new years to even begin to get it right. So what does it actually look like to point to the word become flesh moved into your neighborhood? The beauty of this work is that we don't have to wait until we have it completely right. God invites us to become signs pointing to him and his love now, already, before we can get our lives together and perfect. Um, Most all of you know that my family and home has changed a lot this year as we have begun uh, transitional foster parenting for Central American children who arrive unaccompanied at the border. Um, This does not mean that we have become perfect signposts by a long stretch, but we did make the decision to jump in feet first, even if we didn't know if we were prepared for it. Uh, We still don't know if we're prepared for it because we never really know what or who is coming next. But this church is a huge, huge reason we felt we could jump in, and uh, you all continue to be so supportive and loving to our kids, so I want to thank the church for that. Uh, We truly appreciate it every single week. And I can't speak for my whole family, but for me, this was how I needed to see Jesus move into my neighborhood. It was how I needed to make my faith real this year, this Advent, this birthday, I needed the word to move literally into my home and be a person who needs my daily love and care for them in the most literal form. I'm so grateful that God has blessed us enough to do this, and I can't fully explain all the wonderful and difficult things that has meant for our family, Uh, and I can't explain how having to spend my precious winter break playing no less than 230 games of Uno has humbled me to my core. But I do know that this year, I want to be much better at articulating why we do it. It's not supposed to be a signpost pointing to our own blessings and our lessons learned and the unique experiences that we get to have with these kids and their families. It's only because of Jesus. So far, I have failed to point this out to the world over and over. When we first began our training to become foster parents, a coworker of mine who does not know Jesus asked me why I was doing it. He answered his own question with smirk, kind of suggesting that I was doing it to get an extra jewel in my crown in heaven or whatever. So I did the easy thing and went with the snark and I laughed it off. To him, it was a completely absurd thing for me to do. So I laughed and I didn't give him the actual absurd reason that I do absurd things, which is because Jesus tells us to. A couple months later, a distant family member who we only see a couple times each year asked me the same question. Why do we do this? Instead of addressing the reason why, I just started explaining the how. I just went into how we heard about it, how we got involved, the organization that we work with, all of that stuff. Looking back, I have no idea why I didn't actually answer his question with the real reason why, because Jesus tells us to. Because the word of God has moved into the neighborhood. Then, just a couple weeks ago, we were hanging out with some people at a holiday party and talking about all sorts of things, 
Uh, one of those parties where you have just enough wine that you start to talk about ideas and thoughts that are a little more personal or controversial for polite company. And one friend made note of how much our lives look different now because of fostering, and he suggested it was because of our politics. I refuted that idea automatically, and I kind of made this viscerally disgusted face at him, like, why would you say that? <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't say much else, and the topic just moved on. I didn't realize until later why I reacted neg negatively to that idea. It's because politics doesn't change your life or your world. Politics is just a fleeting vote. It's just something temporal that changes all the time. Your personal politics don't change the world. Following Jesus does. Jesus, the word of God who brings a kingdom completely counter to all the political empires of this world. But I didn't say any of that at that party. I didn't wildly wave my Jesus signpost. The only person who has managed to explain it the right way is my husband, Nick. Back in the beginning, while we were still in training, and we were still trying to practice simple Spanish lessons on our phones and preparing our spare bedroom for perpetual gifts, we had lots of talks with our own biological kids about it. And one of them, I don't remember which one, finally asked the why question. Why are we doing this? And Nick knew the answer right away. He said, it's because of Matthew 25. And we were in the car and he was driving and he just automatically began to tell our children the whole parable about the sheep and the goats and how we are commanded to care for the least of these because of Jesus. And I'm amazed every time I think about that moment and I still haven't managed to reproduce it yet. As the Church of the Logos Word, we do absurd things like forgive enemies and feed strangers and love the very least of these because that's what Jesus taught us the kingdom of God looks like. That's what the Word of God is. So for birthdays and marking years and advents and anniversaries of small church plants even, my prayer is that we can all mark them with hopeful, expectant signposts that point to Jesus and his kingdom, the word of God and his new creation. May we live in a way that always looks absurd to people who don't know Jesus, but may we also learn to articulate that truth out loud and in words like John the Baptist preparing the way.